verses 8 to 12. So the first letter to Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, we'll be reading from verse 8. Let's bow our heads as we come to God's word. The Holy Spirit, Lord, giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and from the Son, take of what is Christ's and make it known to us from this portion of your own holy word, for Jesus' sake. Amen. So 1 Peter 3 verse 8, Finally all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. May the Lord bless the word, his holy and inerrant word. At the end of chapter 2, and in the first half of chapter 3, Peter has written to Christian citizens, first of all, then to Christian slaves, and then to husbands and wives, about what the exile life should look like as we seek to follow the Lord Jesus. And this may be appropriate that today we pick up in 1 Peter 3 verse 8, with just a short summary, a short exhortation that rounds off what he has been saying before. And that is what Peter means by the word finally, with which verse 8 begins. In as much the same way as the preacher says finally when he's about a third of his way through. We shouldn't take to mean that Peter is almost done. But what he's actually doing, and I take great comfort from this, is that he's summing up the section of his letter with a few concluding exhortations to the whole church before he moves on to other things. So this is a section of the letter where Peter is offering practical counsel on living for Christ in a hostile cultural context. To be a follower of Jesus in his day, to be a follower of Jesus today, Peter says it is to be an elect exile, a sojourner. If you are a Christian seeking to follow Christ, you are different. Would you not agree? You feel different. We don't laugh at the same things. We don't do the same things. Peter's language is, you're an outsider. You're marginal, you're a minority person. That's what it means to truly follow Jesus. And if you look at the passage, verses 8 to 12, you see it focuses on Christian behaviour in three different directions. First of all, to the church. Peter first has counsel how we are to live towards one another in the context of the church. Finally, all of you. He's writing to the church. 
Secondly, to the world, in verse 9. How we should relate to those outside the church, to the world especially, to those who oppose the gospel, to those who persecute believers. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called. We were called to be different. How the church is to live toward one another, how we are to live toward the world. Even those who persecute, revile. And in third place, how Christians are to live towards the Lord in verses 9 to 12. He takes everything that he's just said in verses 8 and 9 and brings it under the larger context of living under the gaze of God in relation to the Lord. So that's the, 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 they're the three points, the three summary points of Peter's summary exhortation of what he's just said. How we are to live towards one another, how we are to live towards the world, and how we are to live toward the Lord. How Christians live toward one another then in the church. Everywhere you look, the world tells you on TV, in the newspapers, on social media, to focus on you. It's been one of the biggest trends of the last, I would say, few decades that you can do it. You can do it. You can be the you that you always wanted to be. All you've got to do is unleash that potential that is you. And Peter is saying, no. No, no, no. You're not the way to contentment. You are not the way to the good life that Peter speaks about. The path to the good life is not by focusing on you, it's by focusing on others. You'll never be happy if you only focus on you. Ever. Ever. And we should know that that contentment comes by focusing on others. Just look up with me at verse 8. Peter turns our attention on how the Christian is to relate to the church in the first place. Finally, all of you, not some of you, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. That's a fascinating list. It's just worth lingering over for a few moments. He says to all of you that, first of all, unity of mind. He doesn't mean that we have uniform, you know, uniformity of thought. He doesn't mean that all Christians should think the same thoughts in the same way about the same things. We probably should about what is of primary focus, but that, the things of secondary focus, I think it, you know, it should be in the Christian's DNA to learn how to disagree agreeably. But what he does mean is that the deep structure of motivation, aspiration, the fundamental core convictions of worldview are to be held in common, who Christ is. There's a profound unity of mind and heart that is established when you become a Christian. And you know that, don't you? That you can cross the world and you can meet up with another Christian and instantly there's a bond. Instantly there's a bond. We are very different people who make up the church. 
But if we're in Christ, God has made us one. If you, if, you, if you just think about the New Testament church for a minute, you'll see that illustrated all over. Philippi, the church in Philippi. In Acts 16, when Paul planted the church, he gathered a core group for the new church plant in Philippi. Who did he gather together? Who were the founding members of the Philippian church? Three people who would have never associated with each other in any other setting. He had Lydia, who was a middle-class Jewish woman, a dealer in fine purple cloth. The Lord opened her heart to believe the Lord Paul's message. She became a believer. So you have Lydia. And then you had a slave girl, a Greek slave girl, who was demon-possessed. She'd been used by her owners to be a fortune teller. Paul exercised the demonic spirits and she became part of the foundation of the church. And then you had the Philippian jailer, probably a former Roman centurion, a Roman citizen, a blue-collar kind of man. The Philippian jailer, a, you know, a solid kind of guy. He's got three very different people who probably would have never associated with each other apart from the grace of the gospel. Remember about the Philippian jailer on the night when Paul and Silas were in jail? They were singing hymns in jail, praising God. The cell doors flew, fly open, the jailer thinks they've escaped, but instead of escaping, they remain and leave the Philippian jailer to faith in Christ. The jailer was baptised, he and his family. That was the core group of the Philippian church. A middle-class Jewish woman, a Greek slave girl, previously demon-possessed, the, ep the epitome of unclean, an outsider. Somebody we would struggle with if they just walked in off the street, maybe. And a Roman centurion and his family. And yet, because they've become to know Jesus, they become deeply and fundamentally one. A new, deeper, stronger bond has joined them in a way that none of the normal divisions that typically fracture human society is able to shatter. Our society in 2020 is, I would say, is marked by its instant ability to divide destroy and shatter. But in Christ, in Christ, we are one. And we need to be reminded time and time again, not to focus on the superficial differences, but to focus on our unity in Christ. We need to be reminded of that time and time again. So Peter's first exhortation is to remind the Christian listeners to have a unity of mind. Press toward one another. Build each other up. Work at living unity. It needs to be preserved, protected and maintained. And then he goes on to speak about more things. Sympathy. Real sympathy is a lot more scarcer than you might think. Real sympathy is not just saying a kind word or two when somebody tells you they've had a bad day. Real sympathy is really going the distance to find out what will make a difference. 
form, make an adjustment to provide it. Too often we get into a routine when we're responding to need because we think, I know how to respond to need without stopping to ask, is my helping helping or is my helping hurting? Am I helping in order to make myself look better and look good? In other words, I'm helping somebody, but the real reason is I want everyone to notice that I'm helping somebody. Are you genuinely trying to help the person in need? Sympathy puts yourself in another person's shoes and says, well, what can I do that would really help? What, what, what can I do that would really help, not just to make me feel better? Sympathy. Sympathy sometimes is practiced in the church, I would say, just to make the person providing it feel better about themselves. But the whole point is to help the person in need. And then that requires brotherly love. Peter is saying that we are family. We're not just distantly related family. We're not 14 cousins 400 times removed. Because we can claim that we can go all the way back to Adam without too much of a difficulty. No, we need to care for one another because we're brothers and sisters. And then there must be tender-heartedness. I really like the Greek word. Some of you scholars would know what the Greek word is. It's a wonderful word. Not that I can say it. But it's called eus plakanos. You can, it's spelled E-U-S and then plakanos. It's a fantastic word and it refers to the bowels. Many medical people or theologians would know that. Splagnos is your bowels, and it literally means to have strong bowels. In the ancient world, it is the centre of your emotional life. That's where it came from. And Paul is saying it's not enough to say the words, to show up at the meetings and be committed. There has to be use of there has to be an affection, a tenderness that wells up from deep inside of you for one another. That we have to cultivate and work at. And then finally, after mentioning the vows, he mentions a humble mind. In Peter's day, humility was not a virtue. It wasn't. Not commonly. Humility was considered a weakness. Humility in Greco-Roman culture was not something you aspired to be. But believers understand that there is no place for boasting. No, we're sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure without hope save for his sovereign mercy. That in my flesh dwells no good thing. There is nothing in me to boast about if we've been saved it's because of grace. We've been saved by the work of another. We're saved by the will of God who purposed to make us his children before he hung the stars and who in his time by his mighty hand delivered us from the shackles of sin that held us in slavery and set us free. He gave us a new heart, granted us the gift of saving faith, united us to Jesus. So his, everything is his. To grasp the gospel is to shatter pride. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. Peter calls us to the cultivation of a humble mind, which is essential 
If we're to love one another, to have tender-heartedness, to show sympathy. If you're standing on your rights full of pride and entitlement, you won't be, you won't be able to do what Peter calls us to be. So that's how Christians relate to one another in the church. Wonderfully challenging, but wonderfully encouraging. Wonderfully encouraging that we are, we are one. In the midst of a world that almost prides itself on its ability to fracture, as believers, we are one. And secondly, how believers are to live towards the world. In verse 9, the exhortations continue. He calls us to relate in a godly manner to the world. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Now that's a major theme of 1 Peter. We've seen it a few times. Suffering for Christ's sake, being faithful to the gospel, suffering because you're a Christian. So just a few examples. 1 Peter 2 verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Notice not if, but when they speak against you. 1 Peter 2.15 This is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. They're being slandered. And then 1 Peter 2 verse 19 For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So suffering for the sake of Christ because you're walking with him is a major theme of 1 Peter. And here it is again. How to respond when people do us harm. When people speak evil about us or revile us. We are not to repay them in kind. But on the contrary, bless for to this you are called. Have you ever asked yourself about your calling? What is my calling in life? Well, this is part of the answer for every believer that God is calling us to be a blessing. This is a call for all believers. Don't repay evil for evil. So when somebody does evil against you, don't repay it. When somebody reviles you, don't revile again. But on the contrary, we're called to bless. For this, you are called. You are called, I am called to be a blessing. So when harsh words, unfair treatment land on you, as a, they will, it will, in some, at some point, it will. And that sense of moral outrage and personal injustice begins to boil over. What is Peter's counsel? He would say, keep your tongue behind your teeth. Take a breath. Cry to Jesus, oh Lord, this is sore and it hurts, it is frustrating, it is wrong. Help me not to take the bait. Help me with a gentle response to turn away wrath. Help me when I am reviled, not to revile in return, but to be like the Lord Jesus, who when he was hated, he loved. Help me to bless. What a prayer to really, really pray to really pray that. 
help me to bless. So when somebody slanders you, the very last thing you want is humanly is what is good for that person, that person to be blessed. But that is the call of the believer. And it's easier said than done. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Don't repay evil for evil. When somebody says something to you, it's so unfair. Don't respond in kind, but on the contrary, bless. So how are we to do these things? To live towards one another? To live towards the world? Number three, how Christians live toward the Lord. And look at the third thing he tells us. 1 Peter 3, 9 to 12. We've got the Christian in relation to the church, the Christian in relation to the world, the Christian in relation to the Lord. Peter's going to teach us a basic working principle of the Christian life that will help us live out some of the exhortations that he's been giving us. You see it in verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you will call that you may obtain a blessing. Blessed that you may obtain a blessing. That's the principle. Or in verse 10, in a supporting quotation that Peter gives us from Psalm 34, whoever desires to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, and so on. Again in verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ideas are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What is the principle behind this? You could summarise it this way. Peter wants us to pursue blessing by being a blessing. Pursue blessing by being a blessing. Or to put it in the terms I said right at the outset, the path to the good life, which we kind of recoil against, but it's there. The, coin, the blessed life is marked by serving others for Jesus' sake. We pursue a blessing by being a blessing. Now we need to think about this just for a minute or two. There are wonderful promises in verses 9 to 12. We can obtain a blessing in verse 9. We can love life and see good days, verse 10. We can have the eye of the Lord on us, verse 12. The eye of the Lord on us, not in judgment, in scrutiny, but like a mother whose babies are crawling around the living room, never out of her line of sight. I often look at mothers and I think that they must have eyes dotted all over their head. But the eye of the Lord is on us in tender protection and constant care. And in verse 12, the ears of the Lord are open to our prayers. He hears us. Maybe no one else does. But he is listening. They are remarkable promises. Well, how do we get them? They are promised. But look at the text. They're conditional promises. We really do have to get this right. Because some of us have latched on to the great truth that salvation is by grace alone. And praise the Lord if you have. There is no room for merit or works righteousness in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The only works that God accepts are the works of his Son, 
the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. If he gave us what our works deserve, we would go to hell forever. All of our righteousness is filthy rags. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, is the work of Christ alone. But that, not, that must not be understood to rule out or to exclude promised rewards for conditions met within the Christian life. Otherwise, you, you ignore large passages of Scripture. The Scriptures are replete with conditional promises. You can open your Bible almost anywhere and find conditional promises. Let me give you just a couple to illustrate the point. But you find them all over the Bible. John 14. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. The gift of the helper in view is a conditional promise. The Holy Spirit comes in a new way into our lives as we keep Christ's commands. John 15, verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. You can't spin that around. Answered prayer is a conditional promise. It's conditioned upon abiding in Christ. Christ's work abiding in us. 1 Peter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. God exalting you at the proper time is conditioned upon us humbling ourselves. So what is the message? You need to get this right. God has saved us by grace. And now that same grace is at work within us to will and to work for his good pleasure. But that doesn't mean that now we are children of God, we can sit back and coast. Holiness doesn't come by osmosis. Holiness requires effort. So God has attached conditional promises to many of his commands to motivate us to holiness. And in our text, the conditional promise is that if we will be a blessing, he will bless us. Now this has been the cause of much, I would say, heresy as well, you know, by the prosperity gospel peddlers. But, we can, if you, but if, it needs to be understood, pursue blessing by being a blessing. That's what Peter is saying, bless, for to this you've been called, that you may obtain a blessing. Now let me come in a slightly different way, verse 12. After calling us in verses 10 and 11, to keep our tongues from evil, our lips from speaking deceit, after commanding that we turn away from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. Verse 12 gives us the promise, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. Never wonder why your prayers bounce off the ceiling. Well, one reason could be you've been reviling when you've been reviled. You've repaid evil done to you with evil of your own. One reason that prayers may bounce off the ceiling is an anger problem. Is there a connection? Peter is asking us between your inability to respond to the provocations of others with a blessing on the one hand and the ineffectiveness of your prayer life as a Christian on the other. 
Could it be that you have been in fact repaying evil for evil? Reviling for reviling in your home? Maybe in your marriage? With your children, with your parents at school? In the workplace, with your colleagues? You can have a quiet time every day, be faithful in prayer, read through the scriptures in the year, which are wonderful things to do. You can come to church and serve in the congregation, you can come in some capacity, you can give to missions, do evangelism, be by all accounts a plugged in, zealous member of the local church. In your temper and those grudges you can't let go of, and your spiteful behaviour when someone hurts you. Heed your prayers all along. Because sometimes, that's what happens. You know, there, there's something, a major bust up. Somebody, you know, someone leaves the church. And you think, well, what on earth happened to them? You see, God has promised to give us his ear if we will give ourselves to blessing others. So that's what the text says. This is the path to contentment. To this you've been called, pursue blessing. God has blessedness for you. More of Christ in your life. More joy and peace in believing the gospel. More of the smile of God. Pursue a blessing by being a blessing. One of my great loves of the book of James is that, you know, for a few years I didn't preach the book of James. I didn't. Because I was scared of it. I was probably a, more of a Lutheran, I'm not really a Lutheran, but I mean, I was more of a Martin Luther because I, you know, I was so gripped by the grace of God. But there is a place in the canon of Scripture for the book of James. And we have to understand that, that we're called to pursue holiness. We're called to pursue blessing by being a blessing. And that means that we proactively reflect the love of God for you in Jesus toward other people. You reflect the love of God for you in Jesus to those in the church, to those who persecute you outside the church. Maybe we have our piety and our devotional life here. And that's locked in a box, and then we have our interpersonal behaviour over here. And it hasn't occurred to us yet to follow Jesus is as much about how you respond to others inside and outside the church as it is about your prayer life and how much Bible you know. So when you get these conditional promises do the work in your heart, because they're to call us to repentance, they're not they're not to leave us down, but they're to call us to repentance, new obedience, to seek a blessing, to seek the good life, to pursue blessedness by being the blessing to which we've been called. Brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian today, you've been called to be a blessing to other people. You've been called to be a blessing to other people. So may God help us to know so much more of his smile, his favour, the blessed life, by resolving, resolving, there's a word, resolving, in imitation of Jesus, to be a blessing. So that when we are reviled, we don't revile in return, but we rather bless. Let us pray together.
Lord God, in some ways this has been a hard message because we live in such an entitlement culture that we struggle to understand how the free grace of the gospel and the call to obedience fit together. Help us please to hear your word exhorting us to live in obedience and promising blessing in response to obedience, to long for the blessedness that you promise. By your grace enable us, help us to grow in obedience. We want to be a blessing. As a church, we want to be a blessing in Keswick. We want to be a blessing in our town. We want to be a blessing in our families. Help me not to take the bait. Help us all not to respond to provocation. But to remember that a gentle answer turns away wrath. To speak with kindness when others are harsh. To speak words of gospel hope into the darkness and unbelief around us. Make us a blessing, O oh God. Make us like Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve. And as we follow Jesus, grant us to see the blessedness promised. For Jesus' sake.